From 1943 to 1944, as a result of decades of exploitative colonial policy and intentional neglect from the British government, a terrible famine gripped the colonial Indian province of Bengal. Estimates bring the death toll in Bengal alone to 3 million people, approximately 5% of the entire province's population. Though due to poor record-keeping in rural areas, the true number is likely significantly higher. Today, I want to talk a little bit about the history of British colonial rule in India and the intentional engineering of a famine. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Hidden History. My name is Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 102, The Bengal Famine. As always, Hidden History is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you enjoy this episode or find it mildly interesting, consider sharing it with a friend or subscribing. In the past, some listeners have expressed to me a desire to see more global history represented in my topics, and I agree, I think that's a good idea. And so from this week onward, I'm going to begin incorporating more non-American topics. I decided that I'd start this week by talking about the Bengal famine. Next week, there will not be an episode. But after that, I'm looking to get into some topics like the Greek Civil War and the Years of Lead. If either of those interest you, then be sure to tune in. And if there's something you'd especially like me to talk about, then I suppose find a way to let me know. And so with that, in order to work our way towards talking about the Bengal famine, we need to start over 300 years earlier, in 1608, when a small cadre of British merchant ships were granted rights by the Mughal Empire to establish a trading post at Surat. The traders in question called themselves the Company of Merchants of London Trading into the East Indies, and would later be known as the East India Company. Much like its Canadian contemporary, the Hudson's Bay Company, the East India Company, which would become widely known as simply The Company, wasn't just interested in the exchange of commercial goods. You see, throughout the early and mid-1600s, the East India Company, which acted as an extension of the British government, began to beat back rival imperial European trading companies, like the Dutch East India Company and the Portuguese Casa da India. Eventually, in a move that would vastly increase the EIC's power and solidify the relationship between the company and the crown, in 1670, King Charles II granted the East India Company the right to acquire and hold territory, mint currency, create international alliances, and form armies. This decree brought them into direct conflict with the Mughal Empire, and though the East India Company lost the ensuing Anglo-Mughal War, the company would return en masse, slowly adding massive swaths of territory to its holdings. In a series of wars that began in 1744 with the First Carnatic War and ended in 1765 with the Bengal War. From 1757 to 1858 on the Indian subcontinent was a period known as Company Rule, when the British East India Company was the government and existed as a sovereign entity. Company Rule came to an end as a result of the Rebellion of 1857, a massive uprising against British rule which was in itself kicked off thanks to, among other things, the Sepoy Mutiny. You see, in 1853, the British weapons manufacturer Enfield created a rifle appropriately called the Enfield 1853, 
and I fired a new type of ammunition called the mini ball, which fit so snugly inside the barrel that the cartridge had to be greased, and the soldiers who were to be the recipients of these cartridges believed that the grease in question was made from beef, tallow, or pork fat. Given that the vast, vast majority of Indian soldiers were Hindus or Muslims, religions that prohibit the consumption of beef and pork products respectively, and these new cartridges had to be bitten in order to be used, the sepoy infantrymen saw this as yet another British attempt to exterminate Indian beliefs and practices. In response, the East India Company made changes to the cartridges, but that only reinforced the soldiers' beliefs that their original fears were well-founded. The ensuing mutiny set off a chain reaction of rebellion across the country that, while ultimately unsuccessful, would result in the passage of the 1858 Government of India Act, which ceded all power and territorial holdings of the East India Company to the British government. With this, India entered into a period called British Raj, direct colonial rule by the British Crown, an existence characterized by the solidification of the white ruling and administrative class, white viceroys and governor generals, and the continuation of extractive colonial exploitation. British Raj would last from 1858 to 1947, whereafter India finally gained its independence. The East India Company was officially dissolved with the passage of the 1873 East India Company Stock Redemption Act. So that is, of course, an incredibly abridged history of how India came to be colonized, and that history is the framework within which this story takes place. The Bengal famine lasted two years, but its causes were 300 in the making. And so with that, we can skip forward a little bit in time. We know that the structural causes of this famine were colonialism, but what were the immediate causes? Why did it happen at this specific time and place? Well, it's complicated. Centuries of British rule had solidified a vast income equality in agrarian areas, with the majority of the farming population having been reduced to the equivalent of sharecroppers or tenant farmers, who worked land that they did not own, and instead was the property of the Zamindar, a class of landed gentry tax collectors that was created as a result of the British 1793 permanent settlement system. The alienation of the peasants from their labor, the fact that they didn't own what they produced, kept millions in brutal poverty, which was further exacerbated by the fact that in order to survive, millions of farmers had to take out usurious and unfair loans, which were almost impossible to pay off and perpetuated a cycle of crushing debt. The province of Bengal produced about a third of all the rice in India, and it achieved that high proportion even with an extremely low rate of agricultural productivity. This alone presented a problem, as Bengal was quickly burning through the available productive land, and the deforestation needed to farm such tracts was further damaging the environment, leading to increasing rates of soil depletion and poorer harvests. These are still, I would say, long-term causes, but they've successfully created the conditions for famine to take hold. Structural inequality and land mismanagement had pushed millions to the brink of starvation. Then, in late 1941, an ambitious Japanese empire launches a campaign to capture Burma, setting into motion events that will leave three million dead in Bengal. The attacks on Burma created a stream of half a million refugees whose arrival served to raise tensions within the province, but it wasn't the refugees that doomed the people to famine. It was the British response. Soon, hundreds of thousands of troops arrived in Bengal, using its major cities like Calcutta as a staging ground for the Southeast Asian theater. 
This military buildup necessitated construction which displaced approximately 180,000 people, caused crippling inflation, and put further strain on the already meager food resources. At this point, I don't think there's been anything in the British response to the Japanese that could be seen as overly vindictive or cruel towards the Indians. And that was about to change. In March of 1942, after the Japanese successfully took the city of Rangoon, the British instituted what they called a policy of denial. In practice, it meant scorched earth, destroying anything that the Japanese could use to their advantage should they attempt to invade India. Specifically, this took two forms, the denial of rice and the denial of ships. In March 1942, John Herbert, the colonial governor of Bengal, ordered rice deemed surplus to be collected and destroyed. Corruption and near-famine scarcity ensured that government agents confiscated far more rice than they were actually instructed to, pushing more and more people to the brink of starvation. On May 1st of that year, the colonial government began their denial of transport policy, which mainly involved the seizing and destruction of any civilian-owned boat that could carry more than 10 people. It didn't matter to the British that the agrarian Bengalese economy was almost entirely reliant on boats in order to function. The British had indeed constructed an extensive railway system, but it was forbidden from all but colonial or military use. Small boats carried farmers' seeds and machinery to the fields, and rice back into community centers. Without boats, the already shaky economy would be stopped in its tracks, and vast swaths of the farmland throughout Bengal would be rendered inaccessible and useless. To make matters worse, the fishing done by small boat owners provided, on its own, a significant proportion of food for the average diet. The British Army proceeded to confiscate and destroy 45,000 boats without compensating boat owners, farmers, or those who relied on them for transport. The chaos caused by the destruction of the food supply chain was made much worse by the fact that Britain made no attempt to provide rations and supplies to the population whose food source it had just rendered useless. On its own, these policies would have caused significant suffering and innumerable deaths from hunger, but it doesn't stop there. In the summer of 1942, as the British began expanding their war effort, the colonial government made a decision. It classified everyone in India as either priority or non-priority, depending on their contribution to the war effort. Those who received priority designations were overwhelmingly middle and upper middle class skilled workers in major cities, and they received an incredible amount of perks that non-priority citizens did not the most important of which was food. Food and supplies that were destined for starving rural areas, areas that had just had their economies and means of attaining food destroyed by the denial policy, had their allotted supplies of food taken from them, redirected into the cities. There are, of course, many other events that had some kind of contribution to the creation of the famine. Natural disasters, crop shortfalls, etc., but none of them are nearly as significant a contributor as the intentional actions of the British Empire, and I've saved the worst one for last. In 1942, it was becoming apparent that, unless Britain sent aid, a massive famine was immediately beyond the horizon. The leaders of the colonial government began requesting aid from the empire, but time and time again, they refused. 
It was the beginning of a two-year-long period where the British government forbade the importation of food into India. Not only did the British refuse to send help, but they prevented any other nation from sending food aid, and ordered the colonial government not to import food with its own ships or buy it with its own silver. This policy was the brainchild of Winston Churchill, who held incredibly racist views towards Indians, calling them a beastly people with a beastly religion. When asked about supplying India with aid, Churchill reportedly laughed, saying it would be pointless as Indian people, quote, breed like rabbits. Writing privately about Churchill, Leo Amory, the colonial secretary of state, wrote that, I do not see much difference between his outlook and Hitler's. The British government sent food to a number of colonies near India, but India itself would see practically zero food aid. Indian society was beginning to collapse. Hospitals were overcrowded. One description tells of people in the street who appeared as if they were living skeletons. Soon, waves of death and disease were tearing through the population, reinforcing each other. Communist and socialist groups throughout Southeast Asia sent what aid they could, but it would not be enough to stem the tide of the famine. The imperial government stood by and watched. By the time aid arrived in October 1943, it was too late. Hundreds of thousands would die, and even then, the worst was yet to come. The collapse of social services, prevalence of disease, and scarcity of goods meant that even more people would die in 1944. By the end of that year, the purposeful neglect of the British Empire had left three million The spectacular failure of the British government to respond to the famine spelled the end for the British Raj and the effective death of the British Empire of old. The Bengal famine united millions of Indians in their demands for independence, seen as proof of the cruelty of the colonial system. India would ultimately gain its independence three years later. So I'm not particularly sure how to end this episode. Uh, It's not a particularly happy ending, but I do hope you've enjoyed this episode or maybe found it educational or interesting. If any of that's true, then consider subscribing or sharing it with a friend. I hope I'll see you back in the weeks to come. Thanks again for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.